You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we are uh, still in the book of Samuel. We just finished up 13, where we discovered that uh, Saul is not a great listener. Um, <laughs> Understatement I mean, of the year there. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, to be fair, Samuel was not exactly the, you know, the greatest help. I mean, he was still technically on time, but just barely, I guess. Um, and was that intentional? <laughs> and was that intentional? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Samuel was... Uh, I don't think he was going out of his way to preserve Saul's kingship at this point. Um, how it seemed to me, but then then we, then we kind of wound up, uh, with, uh, learning that the Philistines were in charge of all the metallurgy and, um, that plays into this story. And then we kind of end with a very specific list of prices for sharpening and servicing tools. That right. Is that, is that about where we were? Yeah, I think that's pretty much where we were, um, because I mean, the, the Philistines are going to be a huge part of Saul's reign and kingdom and what goes on while he is king. And of course, they're going to hang around until David's time. So that we have to remember that the main purpose of having a king is to fight the Philistines. Right. That's why they wanted a king. That's why they said they wanted a king. But I think it's also good to remember when Samuel kind of came forward as the prophet of the nation God defeated the Philistines on their behalf. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a need for a war. And so when we keep that in mind, you know, why in the world are we having a problem with Saul here? What, what, why is he not just doing what he's supposed to do? And that really comes to the forefront in chapter 14, which is what we're getting ready to go into. Yeah. Now, r- real quick, I, I do, uh, I do want to kind of throw this out there. Um, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but we had talked about, as you were talking about the people saying they wanted a king to fight the battles, but God was fighting the battles. I mean, he was, but also, I mean, can you, can you really blame the people? Because uh, maybe they do remember the, the earlier days of the conquest where, you know, as they move into things, God does less of the actual fighting. So, you know, that maybe they just kind of have this idea of, well, God's fighting for now, but maybe he won't always fight for us. Well, I mean, isn't that the human condition, though? You know, God did it before, but do we really trust him to do it again? And right. that's, I think we've all kind of been there in our own personal walks. If you haven't, then congratulations. I I don't know this person who might have had that happen. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, be, when you have that constant threat hanging over you, and the Philistines were a constant threat, mm-hmm. it didn't matter what was going on, they were always there in the background. And so even though God had defeated them on behalf of the nation while Samuel was a prophet, they were still around. Right. And it's the the thing is now, uh, you know, we kind of have to go back and look at the fact that these wars are between gods and the, the people are just playing out their part. And so you have to wonder how much does that play into the psychology? Because now the representative, the, the the ultimate representative of God is not in charge of the nation. Mm-hmm. Now we have a king. So if we have a king, just like everybody else, maybe everybody else thinks that they can step in and take over Israel. So you know, there's a whole lot of things going on that we don't often think of because we aren't in the middle of it. And, you, you know, I think one of the things to, to kind of draw a parallel, and I don't want to get into the ramifications of, of any of these uh, illustrations, I mean, but I think we're, we're all familiar enough right now, and not to date the show too much, but, you know, with the COVID-19, with the quarantine, do we reopen the economy? Do we stay at home and be safe? What, what's the right answer? Mm-hmm. And all of those conflicting things that are at play and, and weighing on people's minds, you know, we would be insane to think that you know, ancient people didn't have these same kinds of conflicting events in their life. So uh, do, you know, what's going on in the background that maybe we don't have record of. 
because, yeah. you know, we don't have Facebook for everybody to view their air their views on. Yeah. Well, and, and I know we've kind of we've touched on that idea of of the people wanting a king like other nations just about every time since it was brought up. And I know we but I that was right. just a, that was just a, a factor of it that I hadn't really considered until we were talking about it just now is that, you know, just that idea that, that they're not maybe they're it's not that they're just not trusting. It's they've also kind of remembered sometimes in the past when they've had to do some of that more, you know, not without God, not solely in their own strength, but that, but they have to put some effort forth. Yeah. Well, and that's what God had required from them at the beginning. If we go back to Judges and into Joshua, they're supposed to go in and conquer. And they didn't have, that generation did not have enough faith to actually follow through. So Mm -hmm. now we're back to, they didn't have great heroes of faith to lead them. And, you know, we talked about the Judges when we did our series over Judges. And how flawed those people were. Right. And every time a judge was, uh, he appeared, at the end of that time, there was always somebody else coming back in and trying to take them over again. Now, you know, the problem is they forget, the people forget why that happened. That this was not just, oh, well, you know, uh, these people are enemies. They they forget that God brought them because the nation of Israel wasn't being who they were called to be. Right. And, you know, and maybe that's actually a little bit more accurate as far as uh, a mindset uh, that the people don't believe they can be who they're supposed to be. And maybe if they had more faith that they actually could arise as a nation and be that godly nation and be that light to the world and they they wouldn't have to worry about these enemies but maybe they didn't think they could as individuals or they didn't trust their neighbors to to be that godly person Mm -hmm. and so it, it becomes very complex when you start to look at the fact that this is a nation of individuals and just like we are today it it's not a homogenous group it's, it was never homo- a completely homogenous group. It, it always has this mix and this complexity going on beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I just had to count on God to, to take care of me and I could keep that in the forefront in my mind and not have to think about all the other people who impact my life, I would probably be more ready to just, you know, be obedient and, sure. you know, as an individual. You know, if I could go, okay, yeah, God's going to send the manna. You know, I think I could do that. Um, but I think as an individual, one of the things I have to fight is, you know, is my husband going to be able to keep his job? Is he going to get laid off or, or, you know, what's going to happen and how do these other individuals impact my security and my well-being? Right. So, I mean, and my husband, you know, I'm not downing my husband or saying anything bad about him. That's that's just a common fear you have to worry about. You know, what if something changes where I work and I have to find something new? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of us actively dwell on that all the time. But it is something that just does kind of roll around in the back of your head, right? Right. Well, and it, it impacts how we see God. And mm-hmm. if we, I think if we can keep God front and center in our minds, you know, then we can find that peace and we can rest. But, you know, we're human and we like shiny objects and squirrels. So yeah. trying to find that balance, that, that's really what I think learning how to practice faith is about. Yeah. And that's yep. really what the nation is is trying to do here and what, where God's bringing them, where can they have faith? And we've already seen they they just mess it up every single time. Sure. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so relatable as a nation of, of individuals. So and not just, you know, some mm-hmm. fairy tale storybook thing that's going on that has no bearing to real life. This is actually 100 percent applicable to today. Yeah. So and, and and all Bible stories are if you if you stop to think about the fact that these are people and it really is that simple. Yeah. Just remember they're people. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We stop making them into things that they're not. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway. So uh, that that aside, uh, let's go. Let's move on to to what we're supposed to talk about this week, and um, see where we go. Hey, this just makes my notes last longer. <laughs> so. Fair but yeah, so chapter 14 is considered to be one of the finest Hebrew narratives ever recorded. And it really does have that epic feel, kind of like the Greek epics and sagas. And, and you can get that from the language. And it, it's, an, it's a great story. Uh, I wish everybody could read it in the Hebrew. It, it's, it's nice the way it, it flows. Uh, you know, the best, I tell everybody the best gift I ever gave myself was learning to read Hebrew. 
this is a hard story not to get excited about. And matter of fact, I for weeks now I have been waiting to get into the story. So, uh, but it's a it's a deliberate setup because we're supposed to contrast Saul with Jonathan. You know, Jonathan arrived on the scene a couple of chapters ago. Uh, we didn't get a whole lot of details about him. He just, you know, Saul has his for, fully formed, grown son, which also kind of adds to the mythic, as uh, you know, epic aspect of the story. But Saul's shortcomings and flaws are really going to be put on display when we contrast him with Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And that's really the thrust of this chapter, because we've already been told Saul's not going to keep hold of the, the kingship. He's not going to continue to, to reign. And we need to know why. Why was he rejected? And this chapter is going to show you just point after point after point why Saul could not continue to be king. And it's it's a great um, a great story. One of the things that we really don't think about is Saul is super pious. He mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. over the top with how how he practices religion. He wants to be um, right there on top of how the religion is implemented within his kingdom. But he's really concerned about it at very specific times and not so much at others. He he becomes very observant about certain practices within Judaism when it's about self-preservation and gain. But when it's not about that, then he tends to lose sight of what he's supposed to do. And he is actually, uh, he, he's got the kind of faith that produces fear. It, it paralyzes him. He He's not the kind of bold, faithful person that, that acts on God's behalf. He, he's the the person who's waiting for God to to give retribution. And, you know, you kind of can't blame him at this point because we have been through that scene with the Amalekites and King Agag. Well, but it, when, and we also uh, came through the scene with uh, the Ark being returned and the people who were not supposed to see it uh, mm -hmm. were destroyed. So we've, we've seen God move in some very interesting and, and powerful ways. And uh, but it it does go back, and I think that kind of fuels that it's that like we talked about before that very superstitious side mm -hmm. of of Saul. Yeah, and we're going to talk about where that may have come from because there is actually a thread that that goes through the scripture that makes this kind of a logical conclusion for Saul to be that superstitious. And we need to keep in mind too, like you said, that whole event with the ark happened while Saul was alive. Matter of fact, some traditions say that the, the person who ran from the battlefield to tell Eli that the Ark had been captured was Saul. So very much a part of his life, very much a part of his experience. And I think we tend to forget that that, that event, whether you know that guy was Saul or not, it doesn't matter. That event would have impacted Saul's theology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then whenever you have Jonathan brought in on top of this, and you've got Jonathan who we're going to see, you know, he's bold. He has faith that just blows his father's faith out of the water because his faith motivates him mm -hmm. and his faith causes him to take risk in a very positive and good way. And so this is what this chapter is about, is to show you Saul's flaws and to show you that Jonathan really could have been a great leader. And it's supposed to kind of break your heart that Jonathan didn't become the king. Because I think he would have been a great king. And yeah. uh, we're, we're actually going to see, not only with Jonathan, but we're going to see this pattern again picked up with David, where the son who would have been the good ruler gets derailed by outside circumstances and things beyond his control. Mm -hmm. And so, um, because I, I can't wait to get to that story too, but when we get to David and Absalom, because Absalom would have been a good king. But... Presumably. Yeah. Well... I think he would have, but yeah, well, we're going to look at why that might've been. And, you know, was Solomon really the better choice or was he God's choice? You know, what, when I say that, I mean, the better choice as in our human understanding. So of course, God's choice is always better. So let's, you know, don't like it, <laughs> misrepresent that. Okay. So into the text, this is uh, chapter 14, verse one. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. This is very important. He did not tell his father. He's consulting with the armor bearer, not his dad. Now, dad is not only 
dad. He's also king. So Saul, sh not Saul, Jonathan should have consulted dad. That's just the proper way for things to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that Jonathan doesn't seek permission or any kind of input is is a tip off. It's a key into looking at the relationship as we move through this text. Yeah. So verse two gives us kind of the um, geography, the, the setting for the scene. Saul's at Gibeah. The, the ESV, for some reason, makes a weird translation choice here. They say that he's sitting at the pomegranate cave. There, the word cave isn't there. Sure. Um, it, it's, he, he's just under a tree is probably, and that's how most translation has it. And, you know, and it's fitting because leaders sit under trees. We've seen that in multiple, um, multiple accounts throughout the Bible. And we've gone over that before, so I'm not going to go over that again. He's got 600 men. No one else has joined him. And um, he's at Milgram. This, this is literally the threshing floor. And we know from 1 Kings 22, verse 10, that kings consult with prophets at the threshing, at the threshing floor. This is kind of where everybody can gather. There's enough room for everyone. Everyone's familiar with where it is. So you, you can get there. You can have your big discussion. And but we're also supposed to remember Judges 6, and Gideon is at the wine press, and that he's using it as a threshing floor. And that's when the angel comes and sits under the tree there. So we're starting to kind of get these little clues that we're supposed to be looking back. We're supposed to be looking back specifically at Judges. And um, the thing is, it's not Saul who rises up to meet the Philistines. So we, we already know there's a problem because if if Saul's at the threshing floor sitting underneath a tree and we've got this Gideon parallel going on, Saul should have been the one who got up to meet the Philistines, not Jonathan. And of course, we know that's not what happens. Right. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan gets up and he goes and just like Gideon, he takes his servant with him. So we've got all these wonderful connections and we've got, we're going to have other connections to other stories. Uh, he remains at Gibeah, Saul does. And he's with his priestly advisor, and it's um, the brother of Ichabod. Now, rem remember, Ichabod was Eli's grandson, and they're going to be excluded from the priesthood. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen at a later date. So we're, we're off to an ominous, ominous start because we don't want Ichabod connected with this in any way. So you know, the, we're getting a good setup, and we're only three verses in. But verse four and five, Jonathan and the armor bearer, they're going to travel four miles. They're going through, you know, mountainous, rocky terrain. There's these major peaks, and most of the peaks and bluffs are so big that they, they have their own individual names. So that kind of gives you an idea of the terrain that they're traveling. Mm -hmm. And they end up below a bluff where the Philistines are up above. And um, so when they get there, Jonathan tells his armor bearer they will go up to the garrison of the uncircumcised. We're in verse six. And he says, it may be, or another translation, perhaps the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving or by a few. So in other words, if God wants it done, it's going to happen, even if it's just a couple of us. Right. Jonathan uses that phrase, the uncircumcised. He is really drawing attention to the fact that the Philistines are outsiders. They do not belong in the land. They're people of the sea. They're um, probably from somewhere around Greece, Turkey, um, Crete, but they're not a Semitic people. And we've got this confirmed. We've talked about this before again, um, but they're, we've had it confirmed through archaeology. These are not people native to the land. Right. And the archaeology, which is really fascinating, uh, Becca helped me out with some research on this. Uh, Becca LaBelle, check out the interview with her. But um, basically, the Philistines, they accepted enough of the cultural norms to, to survive and to, to be able to inhabit the land without causing too much of a wave to be driven out. And they rejected enough cultural norms not to be confused with everyone else. <laughs> Yeah, and just enough to annoy everybody. Pretty, pretty much. 
and and it seems like pretty much the cultural norms that they they thoroughly rejected were the ones having to do with Israel. So circumcision and eating pork. Uh, they had had a lot of pork farms. Uh, we've we've got evidence of that. And it's like they do not want to be confused with the Israelites at all. Even in death, they cannot be confused with the Israelites. So that's very interesting. But he, Jonathan's, by mentioning this, is really emphasizing the differences between the Philistines and all the other enemies. I mean, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they're all family. They're, they're different. But they are not outsiders, and they aren't as seen as big of a threat. And you know, we've got those passages back in Deuteronomy where God acknowledges their family, that the lands that they had inhabited were given to these nations by God, just like Israel got theirs. And it wasn't until these other nations started acting up and being less than honorable in their uh, well, dealings was, with Israel. Was... Yeah, well, it was with, like, Edom, it was because they uh, didn't help Israel when they were being attacked and even went on to take advantage of the, the fact that Israel was being attacked. So, you know, they, that's yeah. when they kind of fell out of favor. It, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. All of them, and, and this goes back into the whole genocide question, which everybody wants to, to argue about, all of them did something to Israel first. It was never just, oh... We, we, we're going to take them out because they're different. No, they actually, these nations, Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they, they all acted against Israel first. And that's when mm -hmm. Israel had to take a defensive stand. And that's when God said, if you're going to do this, then do a thorough job. Sure. The, the Philistines, I mean, they're just aggressors from the get-go. But if we look at Jonathan's words, I mean, there's no hubris. There's no manipulation. It's just, if we do our part, we can count on God to do his part. And mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that we're doing what God would call us to do. And we want to be honorable about it, which is in a total contrast with the way Saul handles things. Well, and here's and, the thing, though. He, he doesn't even say we can trust God to do his part. He's saying God's able, and he might, but we're still right? going to go out here and we're going we're, we're gonna to go, and we'll see what happens. And if God dec decides that he's going to use what we're doing, even though it's just, you know, two people going up against an army, then he can deliver with just the two of us. And if not, well, then that's our fate. And that's, <laughs> I mean, that that's it, yeah. what I like about it. He's like, well, we might as well try it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you, know, you can't catch any fish unless your hook's in the water. I mean, it, it's that kind of, it's that kind of idea. And I think that's one of the reasons why we like Jonathan it, is mm -hmm. he's willing to, to do that. And I, I love the armor bearer's response uh, that the Hebrew beats any English translation out there. Uh, it, it literally reads, I am with you like your heart is with you. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it's that idea of, of closeness. And when you find warring societies in ancient Near Eastern culture, and, and we especially see it in Greece and we see it in Rome, there really is this brotherhood and this interdependence on each other because, I mean, this is a guy you're trusting with your life. Right. And so uh, this is going to play in when we get to talk about David and Jonathan, too. But this this kind of camaraderie and this kind of dedication and devotion, this tells you something. Jonathan is saying, I need you to join me in a suicide mission. Are you going to come with me? And the armor bearer, I mean, he's there. I mean, he's not just there. He's with him like Jonathan's heart is with him. And think of how strongly he had to be attached to Jonathan in order to have that kind of commitment. And so I, I, you just don't hear a lot from the armor bearer. But when he does speak in you know, that one little line, you're just like, you got to love this. We all need that friend like this guy. So, excuse me, verse 8 and 10. Jonathan describes his plan in, to determine their course of action. And uh, they're going to show themselves to the Philistines. And the Philistines, if they say, wait, we'll come up to you, then we're going to stay. Or well, if we go down to you, what, then the, Jonathan and his armor bearer is going to stay put. If the Philistines say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. Um, you know, 
we're reminded once again of Gideon when Gideon goes to the camp of the Midianites and he learns that God has said that he's going to give the Midianites to into Gideon's hand. So another connection back to that story. And it's kind of fun that the Lord has given or Yah has given mm-hmm. is a play on Jonathan's name. So we we have this wonderful uh, literary event happening here that you sometimes can get missed yeah well yeah but yeah and it, well it can get missed in the english for sure because mm-hmm. the lord and jonathan they... don't sound very similar well and let's remember uh, we haven't said it in a little bit whenever you see in your bible the lord in all little caps then that's where the tetragrammaton the name of god was often pronounced yahweh we hope that's correct. We we don't know because the actual uh, pronunciation was lost because, you know, uh, we didn't have the, the vowels in the ancient Hebrew. Right. So, but that that's the thing. It, his name would be Yah uh, Netan, based on your name, gift, giving. Hey. So, <laughs> yeah, God has given, the Lord has given, Yahweh has given. So this is Jonathan saying, this is really my destiny. This is my identity, that God would do this for me. This wow. is what I was named for. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, see, see the languages open it up. And this is why we got to at least be consulting great commentaries that take the languages into account. Right. So where, but we do have that connection back to Gideon. And the thing is with Gideon, probably the most popular, famous element of Gideon's story is the fleece. Mm-hmm. And so the other connection is Jonathan's looking for a sign. He's looking for, you know, is he looking for an omen? Uh, what kind of confirmation is, is he looking for here? Now, we, we know in Leviticus 19 and 26, um, Deuteronomy 18.10, that looking for an omen is forbidden. And so this is kind of problematic. And we talked some with Gideon that that was kind of problematic, too. So the sages really work to try to figure out how to make this, forgive the pun, kosher. And so they, they really wanted to, to make it uh, something that didn't put Jonathan in a bad light. So they said, you know, this isn't really looking for a sign. This is common sense. This is like grabbing the umbrella because you looked out the window and saw it was raining. Okay. He, he was, yeah, um, I think it's a little more than that. I, I don't think, you know, he's not looking at, for an omen in the sense that he's cutting open a goose and examining the liver, which was a common practice. But right. he, he is saying, hey, let's, let's try to figure out where God is. Now, there is a Gemara that isn't quite as gracious to Jonathan. And I'm bringing it up because it's really fascinating what it's done. Now, first of all, a Gemara is a commentary on the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is the oral law of, of Judaism. So the Torah is the written, the first five books of the Bible. The Mishnah is the oral law that was handed down for generations. Uh, just verbally, you had to learn from a rabbi. This is was going on at the time of Jesus. So when Jesus is calling his disciples and telling them that he's going to teach them their his yoke, he's going to give, him, give them his yoke, he's saying, I'm going to give you the commentary on the oral law, I'm going to teach you how to apply it and how to yeah. practice it, and that's what the Gemara does. And, and, and it was a, a lot of case law and things like that as well, just trying to figure out how to how to make everything line up with the Torah in real life. Yes, yes, and the fascinating discussions because when we start taking the Bible seriously and start trying to implement it into our lives, we start running into these situations like, you know, is this Jonathan just using common sense? Or is this Jonathan looking for a sign? Is he doing what is good and right? Or is he violating the law? Well, I mean, Saul is his father. And Saul acts very superstitiously. So you know, maybe Jonathan is too. So we, we, we have that kind of tension in the text that if we aren't looking at the totality of the text and we aren't familiar with all the elements of the story surrounding it, then we, then we lose that kind of tension. But the, the Gemara, because it was written by, you know, amazing people who were so in touch with what the Bible was talking about. And, you know, they aren't always right. Uh, there, there's some problems with different teachings. and Nobody's perfect. But um, there was a lot of thought put in it and a lot of good scholarship that we need to respect. And so 
this particular Gemara, uh, Darashos Haran, uh, chapter 12, calls Jonathan a diviner. He says that he's a Nakash, uh, which, you know, Nakash goes back to the garden, but we also have it in a few other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk about where we find those. So basically, I won't read you all of it because sometimes reading the, those passages can be a little uh, daunting with the way they speak. But basically what they're saying is, is there's an implication that this dependence on divination is part of Jonathan's bloodline. And they, they look at the fact that Saul and Jonathan are of the tribe of Benjamin. So if we know they're from the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was Rachel and Jacob's son. And then Laban was, their, was Benjamin's grandfather. The Bible specifically calls Laban a diviner. A Nakash. Yeah. So that's kind of where it starts. And then Rachel, there's some implication that she may have been involved in this because when she steals the teraphim, one of the things that the teraphim may have done was to allow for divination practices to facilitate divining practices. So Rachel, um, she had some misplaced priorities in there, which, you know, ultimately led to her death when she gave birth to Benjamin. Then we have Jonathan in, the, in this tradition. But then we also have to look ahead, the fact that Saul, Jonathan's father, he ends up at the Witch of Endor. Right. So the, this idea that there is this familial line of divination uh, and this connection with the Nakash, and I, I think it's very important that we remember that diviner and Nakash fit together, which was the Hebrew word for the serpent in the garden, then... Um, we, we begin to see how this kind of plays out throughout the text. And we're going, we're going to see it continues to play out in the story. And also, uh, quick little note, Benjamin's brother, Joseph, when he's in Egypt, again, the, the title applied to him is Nakash. Sure. So this is very much a part of, the, of Rachel and Laban and that side of the family. And uh, now, I, so I do this, have a question. Um, mm-hmm. Is this does this have anything to do with the people saying, "Oh, is Saul now among the prophets?" Was there anything, any kind of connection with that idea? I didn't come across any, but it makes sense because if there is this kind of um, aspersion, kind of being cast on the bloodline of Benjamin for being involved in these practices, then that would it would make sense that there would be some questioning. Is, is he really a prophet or is he a diviner? Is he a Nakash? Right. And I think one of the things that's really interesting, whenever we see these things in the in the Torah that are forbidden, like seeking an omen and, and, and casting spells or whatever, any kind of necromancy, there's always a positive alternative that's offered. So you you don't, you know, you don't seek an omen, but you you seek God's face. Mm-hmm. And so you, you always have this this counterfeit presented alongside of the re- the truth and the reality of what you should look for. And, the, you know, what you should look for is always God's guidance and you, you shouldn't take shortcuts. And that's huge when we begin talking about, uh, you know, what does real faith look like? And so now with Jonathan, what's interesting with his story here is it's never really spelled out, but God doesn't seem to be upset. He he doesn't seem to be concerned that this is what Jonathan has decided to do. As a matter of fact, he, he seems to respond positively. And it could be just because Jonathan is acting on faith. So verse 11, they, they both, they show themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines say, look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. Now, back in verse 6, we learned that deserters from the the hebrew army were actually hiding in holes that they were hiding in caves so this is a a correct representation and there's also hebrews in the armies of the philistines we learned that in verse three and we know from archaeology that the philistines often hired outside people from other nations to, to to come in and and fight on their behalf you know they would hire these mercenary soldiers so probably what's going on here is the Philistines saw them and said, aha, they're coming to, to us. They, they are going to join the winning side and they were ready to accept them with open arms. They were just one more, you know, two more people to join the army. 
and sure. help overthrow Israel. So in verse 12, verses 12 through 13, the Philistines call to Jonathan and his armor bearer, and, and they use the precise words that Jonathan had asked for as a sign, you know, come up to us. And, and Jonathan, I mean, he acts instantly. He, he begins to climb up on his hands and feet. Now, that's important. Remember, anytime you've got extra details in a story, they're important because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of extra details. This is a steep bluff. They are crawling up it. Mm-hmm. Now, think about that for just a minute. Well, what, what it reminds me of is uh, the Princess Bride when they're going up the, <laughs> right? the cliffs of insanity. And, yes. And the, he gets to the top and, the, you know, it's like the uh, Inigo, like, lets, the, lets Wesley rest a little bit before he, they actually have to engage in the battle. Well, so, that's it. That's precisely because if you're climbing up like that, you, you are worn out and exhausted by the time you get there. Yeah. And you're defenseless and, on the way defenseless on the way and you are committed to the fight once you arrive there there is no backing out at this point right so this is you know this isn't just him walking up a hill that he can you know oh wait a minute this is too much of a task i need to turn around to go back now he he is fully immersing himself in the fight and i think we forget that you know these these little details like this tell us that there is more going on to it, but if we don't stop and think about them, we don't ponder them, then we're going to miss it. And I think, you know, anybody who goes hiking it understands that, you know, you, when you do these kinds of things, there isn't always a lot of wiggle room. You are committing to these sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, total act of faith. And once they get there, I mean, they kill 20 men. I mean, just boom. They're, and they're fighting over a half acre area. So this is not a small contained you know, area. This is not a bar fight. <laughs> they are spread out. And, you know, only Jonathan has a sword. And only Jonathan has armor. And, you know, this armor bearer is out there fighting side by side. And, you know, what has he got? You know, a stick? Some rocks? That's, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> what I wonder about. Don't worry, you don't have a sword. We'll get you one when we get there. <laughs> well, and, you know, and that's probably... <laughs> probably exactly what happened uh and, and you but the fact that he was willing to you know even those first few seconds in a fight waiting to see okay what's john you know is jonathan really good enough to win and is god really with us and you know you have to wonder was the armor bearer's faith in jonathan or was it in god so i I, I wonder about these background characters. That's always been the way. I'm, I'm the person that when I watch a movie, I want to know more about the sidekick than the main character. But um, this this guy, he kind of fascinates me. So anyway, verse 15. There is a panic in the camp and the field among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a great panic. So, you know, massive repercussions from what Jonathan has done for the Philistines. Uh, The panic encompasses the entire Philistine army. It's not just the people who might have witnessed it. It it, it just floods across the Philistine army. uh, army. The the ESV has a really weird translation. Sometimes I don't understand the choices they have made. Um, That phrase, even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked. The, The Hebrew is actually... The, the trembling of God, not the earthquake, the, the trembling of God, that, and not that God is trembling, but that God caused the trembling. Right. And the, the idea of the earth shaking is definitely very much a part of uh, demonstrating God's might and enacting judgment. We see that in Amos 8 8, Job 9 6, Proverbs 30 21, and Psalm 77 18. Well, and, and we've, we've seen it earlier in this book and also in Judges. Yeah, and so it, it makes sense to me that you would retain Elohim, that's the, the name used there, you would retain Elohim there instead of just omitting it, like the SV does. Hmm. So, because, yeah, it's a God-inspired panic. This is what's going on here. And matter of fact, we're going to find out later that there's going to be points where the only person we care about, that the writer cares about, is God. Yeah, and so and I think I, I think we actually are going to change the name of the podcast to that God inspired panic. Uh, <laughs> while, we're, while we're on that, 
I kind of like it, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is so apt on so many, <laughs> so many levels. So, sorry, I didn't mean to cut your point off. Going ahead, what were you saying? It was just oh, too I, good. No, it, oh, that's a great, great name. Um, so, but no, the 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 writer makes it very clear that he is more concerned with what God's doing than any of the people. So it would make sense that when we re, we translate that from the Hebrew to English that we respect that theological messaging of the writer. Right. Which uh, I don't like. So that's, well, that's... You, you studied under some people who were on the board. Just shoot them an email. Well, they were NIV. So, yeah. Oh, I, th- I thought it was, I thought they worked on the ESV. No, uh, NIV. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, some great I, folks I guess there. your teachers are off the hook now. <laughs> yeah. And, but those are the kinds of things that you you kind of look for. Um, you know, it's not a huge thing. It doesn't change the overall message of the of the verse. Uh, but this is why you need to read several different English translations if you can't read the Hebrew or the Greek. Look and mm-hmm. see, and you know, is the are the translations being consistent? And and if you find something that puzzles you, and you know, again, send us a message. I will look into it. We will figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, I'll tell you. Hey, I I don't know. But, you know, rely on people who have spent time studying this. So, okay, I'll get off that soapbox. But the... Um... See, and actually, I like this. Uh, I like the JPS translation, and it says, and a terror from, a, and a terror from God ensued. I mean, that's... That's a little grander, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's a great <laughs> translation right there, the, the JPS. You can you can feel that, and when and when you think about the fact that this is supposed to be an epic, this is supposed to be along the lines of those great Greek myths and tragedies, kind of got that feel to it. Um, Which is appropriate given who they're fighting. Ex- exactly, exactly. And so, if you could kind of retain that kind of language, that and that's one of the great things about a, a great translation is they retain the language, they ret- retain that that oomph that's in there I, I don't even know how to describe it but when you lose that even if the words are right but you don't cont- retain that flavor it's not a great translation right. so um you know there's well, there's it, been a f- it, and that's actually um it was nt Wright. uh he just they just he just recently uh released the bible for everyone uh, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years and that's he translated the new testament and golden gay uh translated the old testament and one of his commentaries on it was that if you write, he goes, a lot of our translations, and I think I've mentioned this before, are accurate. He said, but if you mm-hmm. write a translation that's accurate, but it's not interesting, or right. it doesn't hold your attention, then it's not actually a good translation. Right. And so I, I, wanted, I wanted to look into uh, that and kind of pull some of it out and see what I think of it. I just haven't had a chance to order it and flip through it yet. You need to order the NT right um Bible and I want to order the Robert Alter because evidently Robert Alter spent a lot of time looking at how to best communicate these ancient ideas in English and actually pay attention to literary devices and idioms and rhythm and you know, all of that stuff and, and his translation of the Old Testament is like five books long so I, I'm really curious to see what he did because he was actually a, a literary um, major and had studied all that side of things before he got into Bible translation. And mm-hmm. anyway, great, um, great interview with him. Uh, I'm trying to remember which podcast it was. I believe it's on on script. It was a great interview um, with him and talking about how he did it. And he may have actually, can I say this at church podcast too? Oh, okay. um, yeah. So that's a good one. Uh, a good one. Uh, get you thinking. So for those of y'all who you know need more to do right now, we, we've got great resources. So uh, anyway, back to uh, Samuel. So verse seven, 16 and 17, we, we leave Jonathan. Uh, we get back to Saul and he gets word that the Philistines are dispersing. And he commands that the people in the camp be counted. And we're reminded once again that Jonathan did not talk to his dad. And so this is where Saul discovers that Jonathan and the armor bearer are missing. And so, you know, not a great dad. <laughs> but, you know, in the middle of the war and I have no idea where my kids are. What are some uh, biblical no. people running off without their kids? <laughs> I know. Mar- Mary, and, Mary Joseph. and Joseph do it to Jesus. <laughs> Saul his, uh, and Jonathan. I don't know. 
<laughs> well, you, you, okay. And a little fairness here. Uh, Saul, uh, Jonathan was an adult. So yeah, that's true. That's true. And and he was in charge of some people too, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. He had his own, uh, own army that he was leading. I mean, at one point, wasn't he had a thousand men and Saul had 3000. I have to look that up to be sure. I've slept since we talked about it last. Right. But uh, Saul calls the priest who was with him, you know, Ichabod's brother, and he commands that the ark be brought to him. And we're told that the ark is already in camp. So we, you know, we've got Ichabod's brother. We have the ark in a war camp. We should be cringing at this point because what what's going on? And when when Saul and the priest are talking, the, the panic is getting noticeably worse. And Saul tells the priest to withdraw his hand. So this is one of those places where we kind of have to fill in the blanks because the, the Bible writer is assuming that we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he, he's not prepared for us to be reading this in Oklahoma across, you know, airwaves and electronic devices. He didn't even know devices. what Oklahoma was. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, when you put this into context, you can really understand why the writer didn't put stuff like this in. Um, okay, so Saul has no idea what Jonathan's doing. He has no clue what he's up to. He calls for the ark to be brought to him. This is like summoning God, mm-hmm. saying God needs to come to the king. You don't have God come to you. You go to God. So right off the bat, there's a problem. Um, the kings are supposed to go to God. It, it, it's He's already getting it backwards. Um, so Saul needs guidance. And so probably when he says, withdraw your hand, the the priest was probably reaching into his ephod to get the Urim and Thummim. I don't know why I can't say this. Urim and Thummim. Because they were kept in a compartment on, on the priest's ephod. And we were specifically told that the priest, back in verse 3, has the ephod with him. So basically Saul is saying, stop what you're doing. Quit, quit trying to figure this out. I, I have a plan. This is essentially the same thing as interrupting God mid-sentence. And, you know, I, I read that and I'm like thinking about when we were kids and we would interrupt dad. <laughs> I mean, not pretty. I don't even, I don't even have to think about when we were kids. <laughs> I think about how I feel when it happens to me around here. Um, I love my kids. I do, but they, they definitely do some interrupting. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, this is something that an immature person does. This is not something a king does. And it's certainly not something you do to God. No other person, none. Not a single other person in the entire Bible shows God this level of disrespect. This is, this is why Saul can't continue to be king. One of the reasons right. that Saul can't continue to be king. This isn't just Saul saying, hey, wait, Th- this was Saul telling God to shut up, that he had to pay attention to more important things. And I think we forget that this is, you know, this was huge. I mean, he he had a direct line to God in a way that we we don't. Ours is superior. But the fact that he had kind of these tangible ways of confirming what God said, plus he had a prophet, and not to mention, you know, he's got priest on call. And he, for him to, to be okay with treating God this way is it, very revealing. Because then there's other times when, you know, hey, I've got to make the sacrifice. I've got to do it right now because we have to honor God. Well, do, do you think that maybe um, there's a bit of Saul here after, you know, because he's been told he's not going to be king or, you know, or his, his uh, descendants aren't going to take the throne. So do you think there's a part of Saul thinking here that maybe, you know, God doesn't really know what he's doing, so I'm not going to consult with him and don't tell me what God's telling me to do. I've got a plan. I've got it worked out. I'm going to do the job that the people elected me to do. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going to just proceed forward. Well, there's probably some of that. And there's probably a little bit of, I don't want to know what God's going to do. And I'm going to do my best to circumvent what God has said he's going to do. Right. Um, right. And, and, I, and so, I use elected facetiously. I know that's not how it works. Well, in a way, it kind of was. And the people made their order and God said, okay, here you go. This is what y'all want. Um, he, he's tall like the other kings. So, 
but yeah, I I don't think Saul has a lot of faith in God. I think he's again that that paralyzing kind of faith, the faith that makes you fear retribution, and it, he never realizes, man, if I just repent, if, if I just turn to God and say I messed up, and how do I make this right? God will actually pay attention to me. You know, He will forgive me. He He will restore me. And that that is the one element that that distinguishes Saul from David more than any other element, because when David is confronted with his sins, he repents. Right. So Saul makes excuses. And so we kind of have that that replay of the garden like we talked about, I think it was last week's episode. Mm -hmm. Yep. But verse 20, then Saul says to all the people who were with him rallied. Sorry. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. So finally, Saul realizes things are going his way, and then he decides to act. Not great leadership here. Um, you know, when he gets there, there's nothing left for him to do. Basically, the Philistines—they—they're already killing each other in confusion. Another link back to that Gideon story that that we're going to hang on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Israelites, you know, they rushed to battle with Saul and his army, verses 21 through 22. And when we find in those verses is the people who were hiding in the caves, uh, the people who were with the Philistines, now they turn and they join Saul. So Saul finally has a real army. He doesn't just have 600 men. And there is a chance for him to win. But the Bible writer is very careful the, the victory is never attributed to Saul. In verse 23, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Um, Even Jonathan's victory and faith and, and his boldness is not remembered in who won the battle. It, it, it's always going to go back to God. This, this writer really has no use for the people. Uh, the people move the plot along. The people reveal what God's doing, but it's always about God, and that's who He wants to keep your 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 view on. Which is why that that earlier translation kind of confused me. Um, so Jonathan's declaration from verse six that you know God is going to give the Philistines into their hand it, it, it has proven true, mm-hmm. and it it is actually happening. Um, but the other thing about what Jonathan did. It was such a smart move. Now the Philistines who had been accepting Israelites had been deserting from their own armies and saying, hey, yeah, come fight for us. They aren't going to accept any more Israelites. Right. Uh, they can't trust that these people are actually going to be, you know, good little soldiers. They might actually be plants. Um, then also the Israelites who had said, hey, we can be safe with the Philistines. They've got that option completely cut off from them. And so you're seeing Jonathan, not only is he, he faithful and bold in his faith, he's also pretty savvy. And you have to appreciate that about him. I, I really do enjoy um, the, the little clues into his character that, that the, the writer just kind of drops like breadcrumbs along. So the first part of that chapter, uh, it, it's the overview of the battle. It kind of gives you an idea of how things started, how things you know, went in the middle, and then how they wrapped up. But then in verse 24, we, we come back and we're going to look at what Saul was doing during this time in a little bit more detail. And so it says, and the, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. We're not told why they're hard-pressed. Hard um, this is right before the battle. They haven't joined the battle yet. Um, so Saul laid on an oath on his, uh, laid on an oath on people, saying, "Cursed be the man who eats food until is until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies." So none of the people tasted food. Okay. So <laughs> okay. Now this is listed as Saul's rash vow. Uh huh. Now, I, I have a question here, because I know this is supposed to point us back to Jephthah, right? Exactly. Okay, do you think it is um, because of because Samuel was the one installing Saul as leader, do you think maybe that's why Samuel put himself in the category uh, with Jephthah in his farewell address, by chance? 
I don't know. I mean, I think Samuel was really attempting to, to present himself as humble. Uh, I don't know if he, if, you know, it may have been a setup so that we have that name kind of fresh in our mind if we were like, you know, reading from, you know, chapter by chapter in a single setting and not breaking it up over weeks. Sure. So, you know, sometimes the, there is that kind of literary tool use that if you've already got this going on because of something that said earlier, now your brain's automatically going to pick up on the connection. Right. Um, but there are definitely several connections. We're going to talk about what they are. Uh, we'll kind of let's go through the the text here in Samuel, and then we'll kind of go back and pick up some of those points. So, first of all, Saul did have the right to put an oath on the people. That that's part of being a king. Uh, he even had the right to enact a death penalty for those who broke the oath. But the problem is, I, I noticed you said on your Bible, and I'm going to say, yeah, on my ESV too, it says his rash vow. This is not a vow. This is an oath, and there is a difference. So let's look a little bit at the difference. Okay. I, I had I didn't know that, but we'll, we'll go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, a, a vow says, hey, if you do this, I'll do that. And there's usually some kind of implication of blessing, that there's something beneficial that's going to come out of it for someone, for at least one or two of the participants. Okay. An oath, with an oath, there's no, there's no benefit. There, there's no promise of blessing or goodness. The only thing this oath offers, I mean, look, there, there's not even a promise of, hey, we're going to win if you don't eat, or God will sustain us if you don't eat. If, if you eat, you're going to die. So yeah. Saul, it's very telling as far as his viewpoint of things. It's always about retribution. It's always about punishment. It's not about actually looking at God for, for guidance. He, he, he really, he is scared. He's a scared little tall man. Um, yeah, Fair so, enough. I mean, no, it makes sense that that whenever he, you know, you see this in his the way he behaves because he does have that very again that superstitious oh the spirit world is out to get me kind of mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, and because of that fear, it actually drives him into dealing with the wrong parts of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I will get more on that in the Witch of Endor story. But at the same time, I think it's very telling because I know Christians today who that there's this this huge fear of the spiritual realm. There, there, there's this, almost this panic and they end up spending more time focused on what the enemy's doing than what they're, what God's actually doing. And sure. I think Saul in some ways can very much serve as a cautionary tale because I mean, when we're looking at what's going on and, Oh, well, this is a sign of this and this is a sign of that. I, okay. First of all, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. Jesus said that. Mm -hmm. But then the, the other thing too is, when we become more enamored with that, we forget to do what we were called to do, which is to worship and praise the king. And you, you, you just can't do both. And you wind up being very double-minded and you wind up being unstable, like James described. Yep. So, yep. you know, Saul really does help us see we have to be on target. And, you know, I'm not saying that we don't pay any attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. We're supposed to be ready with an answer in season, you know, and, and be aware of the schemes of the devil. But don't obsess. There, there's a balance and there's a difference between being aware and just inundating your senses with it. And sometimes, you know, that, that just makes us crazy. So. <laughs> no, I, I can see that. And, and actually, I, I, I listened to I was at a church and they had a guest speaker and I can't remember her name. Um, uh, otherwise, I would cite her. But uh, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one of the things she said that she was very into you know, trying to figure out what, you know, what, what evil was doing and how to be aware of it. And, and she said, she felt like, uh, at some point, I don't remember if someone said this to her, or if she felt like it was just kind of impressed on her to, to this thought just came to her that, that, uh, she was being more afraid of being cursed by a witch than she was, uh, comforted by being blessed by God. And mm -hmm. she said that really changed her perspective on how she mm -hmm. uh, pursued God and, and, and viewed the world. So I, I thought that was a really, you know, I, I don't remember much yeah. else of what she said, but I thought that was a great uh, little takeaway nugget. It's the one thing that stuck with you. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, and that, I mean, that's how I am with a lot of speakers and books and articles and things like that. Mm -hmm. so, anyway. Yeah. 
Like I remember the general gist of it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And no, that's, and that's the thing. We don't know why Saul even did this. We don't have any clue as to why this was an appropriate response for him or why he thought it might be an appropriate response for him. Um, you know, there's been lots of attempts to explain it. Rashi says that, you know, Saul did it so the men wouldn't be distracted and they would actually fight like they were supposed to do. Um, Malbum says that um, it was to help make the men worthy of God's um, God's provision. Mm-hmm. But it exceeds any kind of prescription of the Torah and what a king should do. Now, now David did require his troops to maintain the holiness standards of the Torah when they were in battle. But he doesn't exceed the mandates of the Torah. Sure. And the other thing within this passage is Saul says, and I am avenged on my enemies. Uh, this isn't about him. This this battle isn't even about him being king and protecting. It, it's God's enemies. These are people who are God's people. He's supposed to be focusing on what God wants. And he he's missing the point, and when you contrast this with, with Jonathan's labor, uh, language, let us go up, let us go, you know, it, let, you know it, it's all about what he and his armor bearer can do together. Where's Saul's obligation in this? Where's the responsibility mm-hmm. he's taking? Uh, you know, and it's nothing about the, the um, sovereignty of God. It, it, it's about you know, where Jonathan's was. It's, oh, if I do this, then you kind of get the idea it's not in the language we kind of get the idea that oh if we do this then then god will have to fight for us right and we're back to that superstitious kind of mindset and you know whenever you look at this you can look at judges 16 28 and we have somebody saying that i may be avenged on the philistines well that's samson and Mm -hmm. we know that samson was destroyed when he's the one who wants to avenge his his hurts from the enemy, specifically from the Philistines, he is destroyed. Um, sorry if you heard a bump. That's the cat. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, go ahead. I know. I was, I was just curious too. Is is there any uh, commentary on this uh, as far as how it parallels with uh, fasting and and good ideas about fasting and bad ideas about fasting? <sighs> You know, or, or is that just to, or is that just totally missing the point of the story? I... <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's kind of uh, past the point of the story because there there is a time for fasting and it's very much prescribed. Usually, um, fasting is is a protest. It's a form of protest by the the believer that something's wrong here, God, and it needs to be addressed. And I'm so grieved over this wrong that this is the only way I know to express it. And so that's what fasting is for. And Janet's television debut. Uh, And that's what fasting, the the point of it's about, is is this idea that that we're expressing a wrong. But Saul, um, yeah, there's, there's wrong because the Philistines are a problem. But he's not asking God to move on his behalf. He he's never really asked God to move on his behalf. He he wants God to bless what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's that motives and motivation. He's always got the motives going on. I want God to help me. He's got to you know take care of me. And so what can I do to buy him off? But there's not the motivation of I want to serve God. I want to please God. And I want to be a good king. And and when your motives are off, when you've got the wrong motivation, everything you do from that point on, it's going to be off. Right. And so right. that's and that's one of the things I, I even taught my kids, you know, look at people. Can you trust their motives? And if you can trust their motives, even if they do the wrong thing for the right reason, you can still trust that person. And you can still count on them to have a certain level of, you know, this moral code or compass that will, will guide the directions. It's the person whose motives you can't trust that, that usually ends up hurting you. Right. And that's, that's very much Saul because we're going to find, you know, we've already seen plunder is a big thing uh, with uh, King Agag in the, in the earlier chapter, he, he wanted to keep the best animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, his, motives are what elevates home has right. nothing to do with what's what's up with god and what god would have people do yeah. so he he's kind of a um 
we're, we're starting to see why he's not he's not a good king. Okay. And why he's such a problematic character. Well, this seems like a really good setup to launch into next week because <laughs> um, we're a little over an hour. So, if was there anything you wanted to tack on uh, real quick or? You know, actually, that that's probably a good spot to to wrap up uh, because then we're going to get into some really interesting uh, dynamics with Jonathan and Saul, and we've got mm -hmm. so many other stories that play into this. Uh, it really is, it it's a great chapter of the Bible. I mean, and I would encourage everybody take some time when you find a, a really good story in the Bible. Don't just read it once and go, oh, that was nice. Read right. it a few times. Go back and, you know, even a couple of days in a row or, you know, a week in between. And if you do that, you're going to start seeing things in that passage that you didn't see before. And this really is one of those passages. There's just a lot of meat in it that that's I, I, I love this, uh, this passage. I didn't know I love this passage this month, this much until we started preparing for this episode. Yeah. Well, so. there's, there's definitely a lot of good stuff here. And, and like I said, I've heard several different, I've heard it preached from several different directions. Um, most of them good, I, I think. So we'll see. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and, and not to cut you too short also on time. I know we can go as long as we want, but I also, <laughs> uh, I've got to start some chicken curry here in a little bit. Um, this is the so, one drawback of recording like this. I don't get fed anymore. I know. So, so yeah, you got you got to come back once uh, once we get a little <laughs> more uh, clearance on our travel restrictions. Yeah. So, um, and everyone out there, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And I'm excited about next week, but I think that's just a great break to kind of set up mm -hmm. all the stuff because there's a lot in the next section. Oh and, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and Emily, I have not even like compared notes yet uh so uh thanks again for joining us and we'll be back next week the rest of it if you uh want to have some chicken curry let us know hit us up at uh raven creek sc uh, on all the social media and we'll see what we can do um if uh you like what you heard and want to support us please um the the best thing you can do right now is share just Mm -hmm. share the episodes absolutely write us, write us a review on itunes or, or give us a, a rating um, just let that help people find the show and we can kind of mm -hmm. get the word out. So, um, thanks again. And hopefully we will be with you again next week. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast, a Raven Creek social club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.